We are here because you have loved us so richly. We want to celebrate the love that you've shown to us. You've demonstrated the depth of your love in the giving of your Son. We want to see you. We want to know you better. And we want to live faithfully. We want to live as a people called out, a family, brothers and sisters together, living life together, supporting one another through the struggles of life. And we thank you that your grace is sufficient for the things that we face in life. Thank you that your grace will never run out and it will always, always be there in the moments of our pain, in the moments of our sin, in the moments of our failure. Your grace is there to pick us up, clean us up, move us forward. We ask now as we open your word together, would you speak powerfully to each one who is here? Would you grip our hearts Commend your Son to us so that we might see Him more clearly this morning. Help us to see ourselves, too, in the mirror of Scripture. Bring conviction where needed. Turn us. Grant us repentance where needed. We thank you for your grace even to do that. We look to you now and we ask for open hearts and open ears. Thank you for being with us in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 119, 165 says, Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. In Matthew 18, we're going to hear Jesus warn us very sharply about the danger of causing people in the church to stumble. Spoiler alert, it's bad, real bad. I begin this morning by recalling the psalmist's words because loving God's word can be preventive medicine, protecting us against the danger that Jesus is warning us about. But I want us to hear Jesus' warning like his disciples, as Jews who would have known their Old Testament might have heard him on this occasion. Jesus' warnings come to the disciples in response to their wondering about which one of them Jesus considered to be the greatest citizen in his kingdom. This question revealed an idolatrous heart, reminiscent of the idolatry that provoked the Lord to send the Jews into exile. Indeed, Yahweh, through the prophet Ezekiel, addressed the continued idolatry of the Jews even after the exile had begun. Consider Yahweh's words to the prophet in Ezekiel 14:3. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? This is in response to a group of Jewish elders who had come from Babylon to visit the prophet Ezekiel to request a word from the Lord. Yahweh declares himself to be resistant to their approach, uninterested in speaking to them. Or at least he doesn't have anything very nice to say to them. They seem to be wanting the Lord to rescue them from exile, to ease their suffering or to comfort them. 
But the Lord knows that even these elders are guilty of not merely internal heart idolatry. They've also been blatantly and visibly worshiping idols, what he calls the stumbling block of their iniquity for all to see. And if these are the elders, then they are responsible for leading other Jews astray. In boldly coming to Ezekiel, requesting a comforting message from the Lord, these double-minded, half-hearted Jewish elders were surely presuming on God's grace. They wanted salvation without repentance, and that is not the Lord's way. Nevertheless, Yahweh does deliver a message through Ezekiel for them. In Ezekiel 14.6, we read, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So he first calls for repentance. We'll hear Jesus highlighting the need for his disciples to repent as well. Ezekiel 14 continues, For any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, Yahweh, will answer him myself, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. Internal idolatry whether worship of pagan, made-up deities or worship of self, will show itself. And it will influence others, pointing other people away from the Lord. These Jewish elders cultivated a kind of syncretism. They were coming to Yahweh's prophet, wanting a word of blessing from Yahweh, while they were, at that very moment, carrying their pagan idols in their hearts. Syncretism wanting to combine devotion to the one true God with what we prefer from the world, inevitably, necessarily, results in whole-scale, complete apostasy. Jesus has made this clear repeatedly in his ministry. Jesus said things like, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Later in Matthew's Gospel, we will hear Jesus say that the great and first commandment is, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. The disciples are only following Jesus half-heartedly. And as one writer says, half a heart is a heart filled with idols. Their fixation on their own greatness reveals their heart idolatry. Until we come to the realization that only Jesus is great, only Jesus is strong, only Jesus is wise, only Jesus is good. We will continue to flirt with or give ourselves over entirely to the idols that our heart only too happily manufacture. It was John Calvin who famously described the human heart as a perpetual factory of idols. 
Idolatry, in all of its forms, will always be a stumbling block for followers of Jesus. And if I worship idols, it won't be only me who stumbles and falls to my doom. So what's the remedy? Well, ultimately, idols must be smashed, pulverized, obliterated completely. I'm talking golden calf ground into powder, annihilated, or as Jesus says, turn and become like children. In other words, repent. Turn to Matthew chapter 18, if you haven't already. If you'll glance at the outline of Matthew's gospel that we'll put up here on the screen, you can see where we are in the book today. Matthew structured his book around five blocks of Jesus' teaching, alternating between sermon and narrative. Matthew's telling the story of Jesus bringing the heavenly kingdom to the earth. In the sermons, we hear Jesus speaking about the king, teaching us authoritatively about the nature of the heavenly kingdom and how we are to live as citizens of it now. In the narrative sections, Matthew shows us Jesus' kingly authority through his miracles and his encounters with the Jewish leaders. Since all of the sermons have something to do with the nature of the heavenly kingdom on earth, I've titled them all with the word kingdom. Chapters 5 to 7 was the kingdom life discourse, what we usually call the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 10 was the kingdom mission discourse, in which Jesus authorized, empowered, and sent out His disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom and perform the miraculous signs that attest to the arrival of the heavenly kingdom on the earth. Then the heart of Matthew's gospel was the kingdom parable discourse, where we learn some unexpected, mysterious truths about the kingdom. And now we come to chapter 18, the kingdom church discourse, in which Jesus is going to explain how his eternally living assembly is to function as scattered outposts of the heavenly kingdom all over the world. As we'll see today, he'll especially be highlighting how members of his church should treat each other. But the whole instruction highlights their need, our need, for humility, purity, accountability, discipline, reconciliation, restoration, and forgiveness. As they continue preaching the gospel of the kingdom, making disciples of all nations, these things must mark their life together and should mark the life of every local church. This teaching is prompted by the disciples' consideration of kingdom greatness. This conversation follows on the heels of the end of chapter 17. Matthew 18, 1 begins with the words, at that time. And as you can see in the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version, the disciples' question includes the word, then. Who then is the greatest? They're asking the question in light of Jesus' teaching that included them as true sons of God in connection with Him. Since the sons are contrasted with others, are there going to be further rankings within the kingdom among the sons? So let's look at Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4, where we're considering kingdom greatness. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to him a child, 
He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples sure do seem to be a competitive lot. Are some sons more important, more valuable, greater than other sons in God's family? Now, for just one tiny second, let's consider what's good and right about their question. They are actually believing that the heavenly kingdom has arrived. They believe that they're already in the kingdom because they're with the king. While they're right about the presence of the king and the arrival of the kingdom, they're being a bit presumptuous about their own place in that kingdom, taking for granted something that Jesus is here going to challenge. They are assuming that they're in the kingdom. Even though they were recently stressed out because Jesus was again announcing his coming death, they seem to have put that behind them pretty quickly, and I suspect they've returned to expecting that Jesus will soon establish his kingdom by overthrowing the Romans... And thus, they want to know which of them will be his generals or his lieutenants. Jews of Jesus' day certainly speculated about how the rankings would work in God's kingdom. They speculated that one's number of good works or one's mastery of the scriptures or perhaps martyrdom would qualify one for special honors and special responsibility or authority in the kingdom. The disciples' mindset might not be much different at this point. Peter, James, and John had been on the mountain and witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. Those three had other unique experiences with Jesus that the rest of the disciples did not share. They might be prone to thinking that they had special privileges. This is the kind of of thinking that modern-day false teachers promote by their claims to special revelation. They claim that God appears to them in dreams and visions, speaks to them audibly, so much so that they have a running dialogue with the Lord. And they'll teach you the six steps to hearing God's voice the way they do, so much so that if you just buy their books, if you just listen to their teaching, you, too, can become as great as they are. You can have an intimate relationship with the Lord like they do. They have taken their idols into their hearts. And their pagan methods of divination are the stumbling blocks of their iniquity. Don't be swayed by their persuasive and cunning speech. They need to hear Jesus' rebuke here. They may not even be in God's kingdom. You will know them by their fruits, Jesus says. In order to correct the disciples' twisted, idolatrous thinking... Jesus brings a young child in front of them. The word indicates possibly a toddler, probably just old enough to walk up to Jesus at his invitation. Look again at Jesus' words in verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn... Now stop there. Unless you turn, repent. The disciples need to repent. What does their turning, their repentance need to look like? Read it again. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus' answer indicates that they remain less than one month before Jesus' death and resurrection outside the kingdom. They haven't even entered yet. Ironically, Jesus might have offended his disciples here. Insisting that they must become like children would have been either incomprehensible to them or insulting. But Jesus is chastising them here. They're revealing an obsession with greatness that is completely inappropriate for a genuine follower of Jesus, for a genuine child of God. And this idolatrous self-obsession indicates that they can't yet claim the rights and privileges of citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus certainly treats them as sons, but the adoption papers haven't been signed quite yet. Indeed, as Pastor Doug O'Donnell says, big-headed people can't fit through the narrow gate. Fat camels can't squeeze through the eye of the needle. Thus, the disciples need to turn. They need to repent in a fundamental fashion. Until this fundamental turning happens, they cannot and never ever will enter the kingdom of heaven, much less have any great status there. Repentance from their big-headed, self-absorbed, idolatrous obsession with greatness will mean becoming like children. But in what way? We can think of lots of ways we ought not be like children. At least I can. But Jesus has something very specific in mind. And as usual, if we pay close attention to the way that Matthew has told the story, we can see the point quite clearly. We aren't left to guess here. First in verse 4, Jesus indicates that he's talking about humbling oneself. But it's humbling oneself like this child, this specific child. So before we jump to the conclusion that we're talking about the attitude of humility... After all, most children I know are not examples of humility. Let's consider what the disciples see this particular child do on this occasion. It's this child's actions and his attitude toward Jesus that the disciples must learn to embody. Jesus summons the child, and the child comes to Jesus. Now, to understand the significance of this moment, we need to glance forward in the passage just a bit to see how Jesus elaborates on the point. In verse 6, he will shift from speaking of this particular child to speaking of these little ones who believe in me. Thus, this child comes to Jesus because the child trusts that Jesus is safe to come to. If my six-year-old daughter has not spent time with you, and you ask her to come to you, call her by name, she will stiffen up and withdraw. Even if mommy and I are right there, she'll grab one of our arms and she'll slink down behind us. I've seen it happen many times. But those of you who have spent time with my daughter, if you call her name or she's been around you several times, she'll run up to you because she's come to trust you. She knows that you're safe. That's a part of the picture here. But also, most plainly, this particular child listens to the voice of Jesus and obeys him. That takes us back to the previous chapter, Matthew 17, where the three disciples, who might have the most interest in claiming to be the greatest among the disciples, 
were instructed emphatically by God the Father to listen to Jesus. Thus, turning and becoming like children is simply another way of embodying my favorite hymn, Trust and Obey. And Jesus is indicating that the disciples still are not doing this. The humbling that Jesus is describing is more literally a lowering of oneself. The reason using children as positive illustrations was either super rare or non-existent in the ancient world was because they had zero status in the community. In one sense, they, children, especially sons, were the hope of the future in whom the name of the father might carry on. But in another larger sense, children were viewed as a burden and a nuisance. They make no contributions to society until they're adults. The disciples are status-hungry. They want rewards, accolades. They want to be applauded and celebrated. They want to be noticed. That is not the way of Jesus. In Jesus' kingdom, the way up is down. They must lower themselves the way the eternal Son of God has lowered Himself. It's not simply that the Son of God had a humble attitude, lacking pride or arrogance. That's true. But it's the fact that the eternal Son of God volunteered to stoop down, to literally enter the world in a teenage girl's womb as a vulnerable baby boy completely dependent on Mary's body and God's grace to ensure that he would survive nine-plus months of development and growth, a traumatic entry into the world through a birth canal, only to be wrapped up with rough cloth and laid in a feeding trough. In another context, Jesus said just as seriously, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, In the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Being born of water in the Spirit is the flip side of turning and becoming like a child. And it's a miracle. If entering the kingdom requires a miracle, then bickering about who's great once you get in is just about the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. If this is the entrance requirement... Certainly, it is to be expected of the disciples as they continue living as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Thus, we, Christians, need to prioritize listening to Jesus, trusting His Word in Scripture, and seeking to obey His Word in Scripture. There's no need to look for another word outside the Scriptures. The intimacy you seek is available to you right here, right now. Every day, Anytime you want it. No formulas and certainly no dependence on your own subjective feelings to determine if God is really speaking to you in the gut feelings we experience every day. He speaks loud and clear through the words printed on these pages. You want to hear His voice? Read this book. As we do, we'll see just how small we really are. Abandon the pursuit of greatness. With all due respect to Chip Ingram, 
The whole premise of a book or teaching series entitled Good to Great in God's Eyes, Ten Practices Great Christians Have in Common, is utter nonsense, according to Jesus. There are no great ones in Jesus' kingdom except Jesus alone. I'll throw in one other likely aspect of childlikeness that Jesus has in view here. Children love to be given things. They are glad receivers. Adults sometimes struggle receiving gifts with simple gratitude. We resist other people's generosity. Our pride is inflamed when someone offers us something free of charge. And we are quick to think of ways to repay the giver. Certainly, a children's love of gifts can be a manifestation of selfishness. But a child usually has no resources to repay someone. If we're to become children of God at all, it must be given to us as a gift. There's no need for a competitive spirit. Our Heavenly Father has an infinite attention span. And He extends His love, gracious attention, and mercy to each one of His children freely. And there's more than enough fatherly affection for all of us all the time. But Jesus has more to say about how this looks. Getting low, accepting the low, dependent status of a child, trusting and seeking to obey Jesus will result in treating each other certain ways. If none of us is to be great, then we're all little ones. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus strongly insists that this means we must, become, we must welcome believers and not cause them to sin or trip them up so that they fall. Look at verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So Jesus shifts from focusing on the actual child in front of them to believers, those who lower themselves to the status of the child who trusts and seeks to obey Jesus. Thus, one such child means one person who humbles himself one who embodies the instruction of the previous verses. The disciples must learn to view other disciples not as people to be superior to, but they must welcome other disciples in Jesus' name. In other words, he wants these greatness-seeking disciples to remember that they're supposed to be representing Jesus, His priorities, His concerns, His way of life. One who is great might consider himself to be too great, too important to get down to even talk with a child, much less take care of one. Jesus says such a great person is a person who doesn't receive or welcome Jesus either. Jesus quickly moves to warn the disciples, though. I suspect this is because their thinking and attitude is still so messed up at this point. Their attitude of competition... Their seeking of greatness is likely to spread like a foul disease, and it will impact other followers of Jesus. The focus of Jesus' teaching here is believers, citizens of His kingdom, and He may particularly have new believers in mind. He's looking at these disciples who are asking about greatness, the twelve, as the leaders. 
Their attitude is bound to influence others. And if they remain obsessed with greatness, then that will do some significant damage to those who are just entering the kingdom, just beginning to trust and follow Jesus. As one writer puts it, comparison is a cancer in our relationships that robs the uniqueness of the other person as we elevate ourselves over them. We're all too familiar with the comparison trap. We live in a world dominated by social media. Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, they are all designed to set the comparison trap. And we wander mindlessly into it, not realizing how it is slowly destroying us. One writer has noted that the comparison trap exploits the reality that we have two eyes. Social media capitalizes on this reality, training us to keep one eye on ourselves and the other eye on other people's lives, other people's stuff, other people's circumstances, other people's achievements. We are puffed up when our other eye perceives others who have less than us. We are depressed when our other eye perceives others who have more than us. That person's body is more toned than mine. Their kids look happier than mine. That guy's still in that dead-end job while I've been promoted three times, and I'm making six figures. That's not autobiographical, by the way. (laughs) The disciples were asking Jesus essentially, how do I measure up against these other guys? Who can I look at that would show up my greatness? So what's the remedy? We've got three options for the proper use of our two eyes. First, we could and should zoom in with both eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the only true great one anyway. Or, second, we could place both eyes on other people. Not in comparison, but looking for ways to serve and love. Or third, we can keep one eye on ourselves and place the other eye firmly on Jesus. This is to be reminded simultaneously of our utter unholiness, our utter sinfulness, but also to be reminded of His work on the cross to save us and to join us to Himself. We grow in our appreciation of who we are in Christ. There is no social media that encourages the proper use of both of your eyes. Jesus here reintroduces the idea of a stumbling block. Our English translations seek to convey the idea with phrases like causes to sin or causes to fall away or causes to stumble or temptations to sin. The warning of Jesus here is very strong. There's probably a hint here that the disciples' attitude in pursuit of their own greatness is the kind of thing that could trip up a genuine believer and influence them to sin if their perspective is what must be changed before they can enter the kingdom, then that kind of mentality would certainly hinder others as well. But the drastic nature of the warning here suggests that this is not merely encouraging a bad attitude. The word can mean cause to fall away, as in completely abandon following Jesus. This word appeared with that meaning in Matthew thirteen twenty one. Jesus was there explaining the parable of the sower and the soils. And he's describing what was sown on rocky ground. He says, 
As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. We could translate that last phrase, he is caused to stumble or he is tripped up. Though this person responds to the gospel positively, he says the right words and has an enthusiastic joy, time plus suffering reveals that his enthusiastic response was mere words. There was no faith in the heart for this kind of soil. Jesus is here in Matthew 18 suggesting that it's not just tribulation or persecution that can cause such a fall. Neither in uh, other, profess- other professing Christians can also trip people up. Other people in the church can cause such a fall. Neither in Matthew 13 nor here are we talking about someone losing their salvation, which is impossible and truly doesn't even make sense. It's a category mistake. In Matthew 18, Jesus is considering the church, groups of followers of Jesus that will, like the twelve, have false believers among them. Churches should expect to have Judases, whether they ever identify them or not. At the Last Supper, we'll see any of the twelve could have been a Judas. This is why Jesus is here strongly warning us about the possible negative impact we can have on people in the church. Pastor Doug O'Donnell writes, your, post, your personal holiness matters. Christian, be killing sin or it will be killing you and potentially killing others, these little ones in the Lord. Now, Jesus describes them as these little ones who believe in me. But that, that may be in the sense that they claim to believe in him. From our vantage point, when someone professes to believe in Jesus, to know Jesus, we are to give them the benefit of the doubt. We are to view them as little ones who believe in Jesus until they show themselves to be Judases. But it's not their destiny that Jesus focuses on here. Jesus warns us that if we are guilty of causing other believers to sin and abandon Jesus, even if temporarily, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. John MacArthur writes... The Romans sometimes practiced this form of execution by tying a heavy stone around a criminal's neck and dropping him overboard in deep water. Such a pagan form of execution was unimaginably horrible to Jews, perhaps in some respects more fearful even than crucifixion. This is partly because there was an extra shame associated with the prospect of dying without a burial. And notice that Jesus says this fate would be better, would be better than the fate that it actually is deserved by the one who trips up another person in the church. Jesus will use a similar analogy later in the Last Supper of Judas, Matthew twenty six twenty four. Right before he identifies Judas specifically as his betrayer, Jesus says. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. If you are 
a wolf in sheep's clothing. Or even if you're just a goat among the sheep, stirring division by your goat-like behavior, causing conflict by picking fights over preferences or non-essential doctrines, take heed. All goats pretending to be sheep will find their proper place in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And if there are any wolves listening, know this. If you begin speaking twisted things, seeking to draw disciples of Jesus away, your fruits will eventually make you known. The good shepherd is fully capable of bringing swift destruction upon you. But I say to both wolves and goats, repent. Become a sheep. Do not deceive and disguise yourself any longer. Repent, turn, and become like a child. See Jesus as your shepherd and God as your Father. Jesus' death covers the sins of false teaching and deception too. Jesus continues the warning and extends it in verses 7 to 9. The warning again is directed to people in the church. Christian, beware. Your sin can trip other believers up too. Look at verses 7 to 9. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Wolves, false teachers, people who trip Christians up are truly of the world. And they're living under the judgment of God on the world. As long as the world remains under God's curse, as long as human beings remain under the judgment of God, in rebellion against Him, people will continue to promote sin in others. But Jesus still has His sights fixed on His followers and people who claim to be His followers. He personalizes the warning here with words that should be familiar from His first block of teaching in Matthew, the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 8 and 9 are a compressed and more generalized version of words we examined back in chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. What Jesus is saying here is that your sin can become a stumbling block for other people. Your sin doesn't merely put you in danger of the judgment of God. It also impacts others. Now, for the true follower of Jesus, all of our sins, stumblings, and failures have been paid for by the death of Jesus. But if we've truly received the forgiveness of our sins, we will do the work of amputation that Jesus is calling for here. The hand symbolizes the things that you do. The foot symbolizes the places you go. 
If what you do or what you're thinking about doing engages you in sin, disobedience to the Scriptures, repent or don't do it. If where you've gone or where you're thinking about going engages you in sin, disobedience to the Scriptures, repent or don't go. If you don't take your sin seriously, you might not be a Christian. Review 1 John 1, 5-2-2 to 2, 2 later. One evidence that John paint, points to that you really have eternal life is that you admit sin when it happens and seek to repent of it. That's a mark of a Christian. Show me a person who claims to be a Christian but who refuses to admit their sin, who claims to be a Christian but consistently hides their sin, who claims to be a Christian but constantly tries to justify their sin, then we'll be looking at somebody who probably doesn't know Jesus. The eye symbolizes what you look at or what you focus on. Jesus connected this with lust in the kingdom life discourse, but here it allows for a broader application. Greed, covetousness, jealousy, the comparison trap we talked about earlier, all of these are expressions of the eye that needs to be plucked out. If social media is feeding these things in your life, Jesus would have you delete your accounts permanently. That's what repentance looks like. The danger of not dealing with sin is eternal condemnation. You want to keep your hand that constantly does sinful things? You want to hold on to that foot that walks into places that encourage you to sin? You want to uphold the eye that keeps looking with lust, envy, jealousy, or judgment? You can have it all forever. Two hands, forever on fire. Two feet, forever burning. Two eyes, blinded by the paradoxical darkness of eternal fire. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. That was originally said by the Puritan John Owen, and it has specific reference to Romans 8.13, where Paul writes warning us Christians. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he means you will die eternally, punished forever in hell. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live forever with Jesus in the new creation. Lose a hand now. Lose a foot now. Lose an eye now. Totally worth it. You may enter life crippled, lame, and half-blind, but you will be raised from the dead with gloriously restored hands, feet, and eyes. I guess I should say what I hope is obvious. Jesus doesn't intend literal self-mutilation here. It's not actually your hands, feet, or eyes that cause you to sin anyway, right? And Jesus knows that. Every form of sin originates in that idol factory called your heart. 
The image of amputation is intended to paint the graphic picture of how dangerous sin is in our lives. And Jesus' larger point in this context is that your unrepentant sin can trip other people up too. Think about new Christians. If they see you being dominated by sin while you claim to be a Christian, they're going to think they can do what you do. Or if you sinfully treat Christians like you're better or greater than they are, you might lead them to despair. You might be setting the comparison trap for them. But in this regard, let's heed Paul's word in Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And that leads us into the last section of our passage this morning. In verses 10 to 14, Jesus tells us, instead of looking down on other believers, we should be looking after them. And as we read the passage, you might notice that there isn't a verse 11, unless you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version, or you'll see it in brackets in the New American Standard Bible. Nine times out of ten, the modern versions are correct in omitting these verses. The words of verse 11 were certainly not written by Matthew, but were rather added by a scribe borrowing from Luke 19.10. Look at verses 10 to 14. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So... It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Despising little ones is the opposite of the welcoming we are instructed to do in verse 5. The disciples questioning who was the greatest was implicitly looking down on others, looking for other disciples who are somewhat less than them. It's a kind of judgmentalism. Jesus gives one interesting reason for not despising one of these little ones, and then he tells a parable illustrating how we should view each other. Jesus is still warning us here, don't despise other Christians. Don't think poorly of them because of their angels in heaven. This verse does not provide any positive evidence for the popular cultural or Catholic or Jewish ideas about so-called guardian angels. Notice that these angels are in heaven, not on earth, as guardian angels are often depicted in movies and novels. But there is a hint that these angels might be dispatched to execute judgment on someone who looks down on another Christian. That's the warning edge. And Jesus describes their angels as always seeing the face of God. These must be very high-ranking angels indeed. When the prophet Isaiah saw a vision of the heavenly throne room, he saw creatures he described as seraphim, which are never connected with angels in the Bible. But these magnificent creatures are described as floating around and above the heavenly throne of God. And they are constantly covering their eyes. And they are heard constantly praising God, saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim, apparently, never see the face of God. Yet, these angels that Jesus mentions always see the face of God. And Jesus says, don't despise other Christians because of these angels. And I think the implication is, God could dispatch any one of these angels at any moment to avenge the honor of one of these little ones who believe in Jesus. The point is clear. These little ones are highly valued by God. Then Jesus adds a parable. I think we're typically more familiar with the other sheep parable in Luke 15. The details and the point are different here. So let's pay close attention to what Jesus says here in Matthew. The biggest difference is the description of the one sheep. In Luke, the one sheep is lost. But in Matthew, the one sheep went astray. The word could also be translated, has been led astray. I think that's important in this context. Jesus' warning focuses on the possibility of tripping other people up. One way we might do that is by deceiving them, leading them astray down a path that will lead to destruction. We can do that with false teaching, but we can also do that by not dealing with our own sin appropriately. In Luke, the lost sheep represents an unbeliever. In Matthew, the sheep represents someone who at least was in the sheep pen and profess to be a believer. The shepherd in Luke is clearly God, but in Matthew, that's not quite so clear. This parable is meant to illustrate the positive way to obey the command of verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Thus, the shepherd here points to the seeking activity of the church. The seeking activity that the church should be constantly engaged in. We'll see how he elaborates this picture in verses 15 to 20 next week. When we see a church member wandering off, we should act like this shepherd. Don't ignore the wandering sheep because you're too busy hanging out with all the other sheep who haven't strayed. This is where we can be like the disciples with their focus on greatness. Either we think we're too important or we think... We want to hang out with all the people who we think are important. If we hear of a church member who's calling out for help, if we see a church member who's wandering away, being distracted by the world or led astray by false teaching, we we should seek them out and try to help them. If we see a Christian sinning or if a church member sins against us, Will we address it with him faithfully and carefully, as Jesus will instruct us in the next paragraph? The Christian life is not to go solo. One writer referred to our tendency toward hyper-individualism as Cain's heresy. Cain had the audacity to ask God, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, Christian, if you don't know the answer to that question, let me tell you, yes, yes, you are your brother and your sister's keeper. The elders of the church have indeed been called and equipped to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. But that does not mean that it is only our responsibility to care for and walk with the sheep. Jesus' parable here is is meant to remind us that we are all in this together. We are meant to be looking after each other. Certainly not looking down on each other. And especially, especially not looking down on someone who's struggling straying or sinning.
James concludes his letter with these words, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, or it could be translated, if anyone among you is led astray from the truth, and someone brings him back like a good shepherd, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We're not playing around here. Wandering sheep are often preyed upon by wicked men. Wandering sheep are desperately vulnerable, even if they don't think they are. To seek to live a life disconnected from the church, disconnected from the sheepfold, is not only to miss out on a host of blessings that God only provides through community, but also to live in constant danger of falling into a pit. Sometimes sheep wander because they're proud. And in their rebellious pride, they think they need nothing and no one. They don't need shepherds. They don't need other sheep. That spirit of independence might reveal an overconfidence in one's own greatness, which might reveal a certain goatness about one who claimed to be a sheep. Verse 14, verse 14, beautiful, beautiful promise. If the shepherding activity illustrated in the parable is describing the protective measures the church should be taking to look after each other, verse 14 indicates that the Father oversees the process to ensure that none of these little ones will actually perish. They may wander but true sheep will not be destroyed. This is the same thing Peter speaks to in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's not a statement of God's desire concerning every human being on the face of the planet. That's a statement of God's plan for the sheep. His patience is extended toward you, people in the church, sheep, some of whom might be wandering at the moment. And also, it's directed toward some in the church who currently remain goats. The Father will not allow any true sheep to be lost. This is the repeated affirmation of the other famous sheep parable in John 10, 27 to 29. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And why are the sheep ever so secure? John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died to purchase his sheep, even those who wander. And he will certainly bring home what he has purchased. In a passage like Matthew 18, which contains such sharp warnings. And my tone has been hard this morning because Jesus is being hard. He's warning us, and I want you to feel the weight of that. I feel the weight of that. But with these warnings, 
We don't want to mute them. We don't want to soften them. We do want to remember the good news that God offers forgiveness to those who will come to Jesus, believe in Jesus, listen to Jesus, and follow Jesus. Forgiveness even, even for our mistreatment of other Christians. I certainly deserve to have a great millstone fastened around my neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. No, actually, I deserve worse. I deserve to be cast away into hell forever. The world sits under God's judgment, but God has loved the world under His judgment by sending His only eternal Son, giving Him as a gift so that whoever believes in Him, whoever turns and becomes like a responsive child, should not perish but have eternal life. If you haven't made that downward turn, do so today. Trust Jesus. Obey Jesus. Turn away from your sin. Abandon your desire for greatness and you will be welcomed into a forever family where your adopted brothers and sisters will look after you. We'll struggle to do it. We'll fail at times, but we're committed to look after each other. Let's all repent of the ways that we have looked down on others at times. And let's engage in the true spiritual warfare of putting to death the deeds of the body as the Spirit empowers us, taking extreme measures, cutting off hands and feet, plucking out eyes to repent of sin in our lives so that we might set the kind of example of following Jesus that's worth imitating for our children and for other believers in the church. Would you pray with me? Father, you warn us because you love us. You warn us because you love us. Help us to take heed to the warnings in the Scriptures, not to ignore them, not to soften or minimize them, or to get around them or dodge them, but to take them seriously so that we keep walking faithfully on the narrow road. Thank you for the gifts that you give. All of it is by grace. All of it. And so we depend on you for faithfulness. We depend on you to stay in the sheep pen. And we pray, Father, that you would preserve us from error, preserve us from straying, preserve us from being led astray. Help us to be diligent in our discernment and faithful in our digging into the Scriptures. Help us to be the kind of people that can be commended like the Bereans who take the things that we hear and measure them against your Word daily, regularly, constantly. Thank you that it's not up to us and it's not dependent on our strength or our greatness. Thank you for being great in our place. Lord Jesus, we worship you and you alone. Help us never to be enamored with personalities, whether they be on the radio or on YouTube or behind some pulpit. Help us to be enamored with Jesus and Jesus alone. He is great. He is worthy of our worship and devotion. He is worthy of losing a few hands and feet and eyes. And so we pray that you would give us great wisdom and sensitivity as we seek to look after each other. Help us to be a loving church. Help us to grow in our perception and taking seriously our responsibility for our brothers and sisters. And may no one, may no one wander away to destruction. 
Thank you for your grace, your preserving grace. Help us to celebrate the great work of the gospel even when we come to passages like this that make us sorrowful and turn us to repentance. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for your Spirit's presence to change us and to do what we could never do. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.